Dave, can I just start by saying that I've been banned from doing the whole canned laughter and applause <laughs> thing by Dan, which is just not fair. I think that's quite right. I think uh, <laughs> I, I'm with Dan on this. What's the point? With Anna Neal and Dan Chisholm. Welcome to the first in a series of monthly podcasts where we're going to tell you what it's really like to be a full-time creative in the music industry. Whether you hope to become a singer, songwriter, recording artist, session musician, engineer or producer, we're going to tell you what it's really like. We'll talk to people who tell it like it is, with the aim of giving you a full picture of the hard work which lies ahead. The music business evolves rapidly and has again reinvented itself following the global pandemic. Whether you're seeking inspiration or wondering what's the point, this podcast is for you. Our first guest is a drummer from one of Britain's biggest rock bands. Every time they put a stamp on an envelope, they build it to you and you had to pay that debt back at 20p in the pound. You should be grateful because you're getting 0.0000000000 pence per stream. So look at me like that. If that's what if that's what I'm here for to say, kids, don't do it. You've got the wrong man. What's the point? Their greatest hits album, The Best of Blur, sold more than 2 million copies worldwide. They had 26 top 40 UK singles, including two number ones and six number one albums along the way. Since then, Dave Roundtree stepped from behind the drum kit to further his career in music and animation while training as a solicitor in criminal law. He more recently became involved in politics also has his own podcast and foresaw problems later faced by the music industry with the arrival of the digital and streaming age. But more on that later. Yes, and Britpop was a significant part of British music history. But now it's all changed enormously since then. So how do you reflect on that, Dave? Well, I'll caveat that by saying uh, I've never made any Britpop and uh, I don't know anybody who ever has. It's not a term (laughs) that anyone who was there at the time will own up to. Uh, it's a, one of these kind of retrospect labels applied to a bunch of bands that didn't really have very much in common with each other, generally hated each other, and certainly weren't part of some kind of scene or movement. What's changed? Well, the big thing that's changed, obviously, it doesn't take a music industry professional like me to say, is the move to digital, which fundamentally changed everything. Back at when we started, you used to used to sell bits of plastic and you used to tour to promote the sales of those bits of plastic. And uh, now there's no money to be made really from selling re- recorded music apart from those in the very high echelons of the industry. And uh, the vast majority of musicians like my income now comes from publishing income or uh, and or touring income. Touring income on in, in the years when we're actually allowed to do things like this. So if you're thinking of having a career in the music industry, do you think the traditional structures, you know, such as getting a record deal or getting signed, still apply? No, I don't think so. And I'm not sure it was ever a particularly good idea, to be honest. Way back when, when I was first starting out in the industry, um, that was pretty much what there was. There were independents, but that meant um, relegating yourself to a B-list career if you signed to an independent because they didn't have a million pounds to spend on marketing you. Bands signed to independent labels sold so few records that they had to have their own chart to make it look like something interesting was going on. 
or you signed to a major record label. They would they used the shotgun approach in those days. They would sign 100 acts a year and in the expectation that one or two of those would uh, break through and make some money back. The downside of signs the uh, larger labels was every time they put a stamp on an envelope, they billed it to you and you had to pay that debt back at 20p in the pound. So if they, as they usually did, run ran up at debts of a million pounds over the first two or three albums, you had to pay back five million pounds to pay off the debt. The upside of that is they paid, you know, they, they had the money to market you. So you had a much better chance of, uh, of uh, being one of the acts that broke through. So Blur was one of those acts on those obscure charts, weren't they? Yeah, well, the, because, uh, the, because the indie chart happened and it meant you could, uh, you could get in, the, in Music Week, you know, it was a proper chart and it, it was kind of published along with all the other charts. So uh, people started gaming the system. Um, so a lot of major labels looked at the rules for what constituted an indie and set up something that just constituted an indie and so released new bands on those labels. So we were signed to Food and Food were one of those labels. Tragically, EMI misread the rules. So uh, Food never qualified for the indie charts. (laughs) (laughs) So we had all the downsides of being on an indie without any of the upsides. We didn't really. We were basically... We had the the weight of the EMI machine behind us, and it didn't really matter. Luckily for us, because uh, what we did and another few bands did at that time suddenly became mainstream almost overnight. Went from being struggling, no hope indie bands to uh, to being number one in the actual charts. You know, which nobody could have predicted. With few people currently making money from music because of the much-discussed issues, which I'm quite sure we'll probably go into in a while, why would anybody want to do it? Nobody goes into music to make money. There's very little money to be made. As I say, apart from the top 1% of the top 1%, if you want a career in music, you're going to have to resign yourself to the fact that you're going to be living hand-to-mouth much of the time. That's always been the case. This isn't a new thing. That's nothing to do with digital. It's nothing to do with MP3s and file sharing. That was always the case. People who do it, do it because they're, um, in my experience, I can only speak for me, rather obsessive by nature and get utterly obsessed by it. (laughs) Because I can think of no other good reason. You have to basically sacrifice your life in order to get good at your instrument over the course of 10 years or so and then resign yourself to a career where you're probably likely to have to get a second job to supplement the uh, income some years. There are two words in music business. One is the music and the other is the business. Now, from the artist's point of view, could you enlighten us as to just how much of a, a pain stroke, how much work it was to have to do the other side other than the, other than the actual creation of music? I think bands have, uh, have it much harder these days. When we first started out... I, I hate I hate starting all my answers. Well, when we like you know I'm kind of talking about in the old days, in my day, you know. But uh, but it was very different then. So but in those days, you did you you certainly weren't expected to know how the business operated. And in fact, it was a bit of uh, uh, selling out to the man if you uh, took too much interest in how the how the money was generated. 
you were supposed to just be in it for the art and would be quite willing to die uh, making your art, uh, even if it generated no money because it was the right thing to do. That was the game you had to play. You had to pretend that that was going on. But certainly we didn't pay any attention to how money was made in the music industry. We were signed for the grand total of £7,500 and uh, we lived on £20 a week for the first, first kind of three or four years of our existence, if not longer. And so uh, we became very good at turning up at the record company's offices and uh, persuading them to take us out for lunch because that was how we ate. <laughs> And <laughs> and eventually we uh, we got a deal going with our local um, recording studio where every ter- every day we were there, the guy would buy us each a pizza and a packet of cigarettes. So we uh, transferred our loyalty from the record company offices to the recording studio. I'm not entirely sure the record company didn't arrange that actually. A, to get us out of their hair, and B, it meant there was this constant spewing forth of music coming out of us. You know, if we weren't doing anything else, we were in the studio writing music. So we had tons and tons of music for each album. If it, if it was their idea, it was quite a good investment, I think. Um, good investment in Pizza Express as well, I imagine. Yeah, we, I think we single-handedly <laughs> kept, that, kept that Pizza Express going. <laughs> and the local uh, tobacconists. You've mentioned this issue of technology. So the first time I met you was at a music conference where you warned label management about the challenges ahead with regards to file sharing networks. How do you feel about that now? Well, I was one of the early, you know, if this was, if the music industry is a disaster movie, I was the, I was the kind of uh, priest sitting in the (laughs) departure lounge telling everyone that the flight was cursed. You know, I was uh, I saw the wor- the warning signs early on, and I because re- I was ahead of the game with technology in those days. I I, know I was, and I still am quite technical, and I could see exactly where things were going. So I made it my mission to try and persuade the the majors that they were going to have to change the way they did business, or else there was going to be real real trouble. The majors, however, weren't remotely interested. They treated the internet as if it was another release format. And they thought what they needed to do was hire somebody and set up a new office and kind of manage it somehow. They didn't see that, you know, this disruption hadn't happened. That wasn't really a word yet. You know, Amazon hadn't happened. Uber hadn't happened. So nobody was used to an entire industry being picked up and turned on on its head um, by some kind of Californian tech wizards. I wasn't able to point to any examples of this having happened already, even though there were plenty of examples historically. I mean, you know, the the computing revolution was preceded by a whole bunch of other revolutions, like uh, electrification, for example, that completely turned society on its head. These examples were there, but the music industry, with the arrogance that we uh, that we have always had, thought they thought we were somehow immune to all of this. Ever since the 60s, the, the major record labels have basically had the magic money tree, you know, and they were able to shake it at will. And all of the uh, technological advances had seemed to benefit them. CDs especially was the most recent one. And that was something they had just managed. And they just managed to sell people their record collections again a second time over on some other bits of plastic. So they were like, well, we could, we're like the kings of the world. We can do what we like. Yeah, bring the internet on, you know. We don't care. 
So uh, they were completely uninterested in me with being my kind of prophet of doom. <laughs> so, <laughs> and my message was something they didn't want to hear. It was, uh, if you don't do something now, you're going to get overtaken by events and a major label is going to go under before we will take that before you realise uh, the error of your ways. I turned up to these meetings with fistfuls of documents to demonstrate how it all worked and how, you know, how the future was pretty much inevitable. And uh, yet I was stonewalled. And the problem was, you know, many of the people at the higher echelons of the music industry weren't really music people and weren't really technology people, especially when you get up to board level. You know, they, it was, they were swapping board members with washing powder companies. They were, these weren't people that understood the music industry. They weren't people that understood technology particularly. You know, they were people who were looking at balance sheets and, uh, you know, marketing opportunities and that kind of thing. They, we weren't the only industry that was ill-prepared, I tell you. We really weren't. Yeah, but we were always um, slow. I mean, we're notorious <laughs> for that. Yeah. So now we rely on streaming. We rely on Spotify. Do we? I don't. I don't make any money from streaming. Really? Who are these people that rely on streaming? I haven't met them. This isn't first time around the block for me. I remember when, uh, when there was a, a, a mass groundswell of public opinion that thought CDs were too expensive, that the majors were churning about £15 a pop and people started to resent paying £15 for a CD and there was a mass groundswell of opinion um, against the record industry and the record industry produced this wallpaper whitewash report. They commissioned, you know, one of these awful accountancy firms to produce. They, they commissioned them to produce a report which, as if by magic produced the astonishing conclusion that about £15 was about right. And actually, they were lucky to be getting the value they were getting for this £15. And really, lucky it wasn't a bit more. And uh, the the hands of the music industry were forced. And uh, within a couple of years, CDs uh, were forced to be sold at £10. And then you started getting remainder buckets, which you never got before. Of all the CDs they couldn't sell, they were knocking out for one ninety nine. By the time that had finished, the the public at large had lost all respect for the record labels and had no particular compunctions about the birth of file sharing and just downloaded it for nothing. And I thought, well, if that's your if that's your uh, the way you're going to deal with your customers, frankly, you can sod off and we'll just download it from Nasta for nothing. <laughs> so, the music industry shot itself terribly in the foot at that at that junction and you the music industry now is the streaming sites really to all intents and purposes that that's the that's the by which the record industry sorry is now the the streaming services they are now are the major labels and they're doing the same oh no yeah we we actually uh distribute a really fair proportion actually i think you should be you should be thankful that we're uh taking all your all your uh uh, copyrights. We didn't ask you if we could. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't uh, do a deal with you about it. We just took them, you know, and uh, we market them how we want to. We're not. We're not going to rev- revert to you and ask you if we think you're doing the right thing. If you think we're doing the right thing, we're just going to do it, you know. And you should be grateful because you're getting not point not 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 pence per stream. Can I just say that I did pay £15 for a Blur album? Thank you. Well, 
if I, if I sell it on a digital download, can you pay £15 again? <laughs> so if I sound a bit bitter about all this, I've just seen it all before, you know. I've just seen it all before. At the end of the day, the consumer always wins one way or another. And it's just a shame that when we set up the Featured Artists Coalition, it was around. It was at the time where it looked like artists were going to be able to have some leverage in the way the industry changed during the move to digital. Well, that was an illusion, sadly, and artists yet again have been left as the powerless components of this machine. The record labels divvied up Spotify, took huge financial stakes in it, and, are, and are, have recouped their uh, money many, many, many times over through dividends before any of that gets gets to uh, be distributed to artists. Kind of in the way the record labels used to in the old days, you know, they would uh, they would rack up all kinds of money against your uh, royalty account, which you then had to pay back at 20 pence in the pound, and that you had no control over any of this. We've now got to a situation where there are generations, probably, you know, not just the current one, but more than one, that are used to obtaining music for very little without consideration for the costs involved in actually producing it in the first place. Yeah, and th- that we've got to that point because of the mismanagement, the criminal mismanagement of the move to digital by the record industry, who were, were so arrogant, so blinkered, and so used to flying around the private jets that uh, they thought they were invulnerable. And they thought, as I say, they thought this was going to be another format to be managed rather than they something that was going to change the fundamental nature of the industry. And to be fair to them, as I say, they hadn't, they had, the, the, the change they'd lived through had been pretty much that, you know. no, Nobody was alive then who remembers electrification, you know, nobody remembers the kind of the mass market of you know the mass marketing of cars and how that changed the cities people people didn't grow up with these kind of technological changes they read about them in history books and they thought thank god all of that stuff is over and in the past and now we're living in the modern nirvana where everything will stay the same forever and us grown-ups live under that illusion permanently you know I think that must be something built into the psyche of the human. We always imagine that now, now we're at the pinnacle, you know, and you imagine kind of Homer or uh, Cicero or somebody also laboured under that illusion. Cicero looked out over Rome, the dying days of the Republic, and thought, that's it, our Republic will last another thousand years. This is the pinnacle of human achievement. And, you know, two years later, he had his head chopped off and uh, Caesar stormed into... (laughs) Into across the Rubicon, stormed in, changed everything. You know, well, it, we none of us lived through changes like that. Our grandparents and great grandparents did. So for a few generations, things have conspired to keep that illusion, sort of reinforce that illusion in our minds. So people weren't prepared for this. You know, and people just weren't interested in the kind of idiot vicar kind of sitting in the corner of the departure lounge saying this flight is doomed people just weren't interested do you think people (laughs) see you dave and start running (laughs) it's amazing how little pleasure i got in saying i told you so there was honestly no pleasure in that whatsoever in fact i stopped saying it once at a conference i stood up and said i told you (laughs) it didn't didn't make me any friends (laughs) 
<laughs> when was that? Can't remember. That was I can't remember when that was. But anyway, yeah, no one likes a smart ass. <laughs> Where do you think we are now in terms of you know, there are people who are probably listening to this who will probably want to be the next whatever or the first big star of this this century or something, and then they find themselves in a position where nobody seems to know where the music industry is going at the moment, but they need some hope. Do you see anything that offers hope? Yeah, yeah, this is all going somewhere. People like pop music. Pop music is still a marketable product. So what the trouble is, we're in, we're, it might not seem it, you know, again, this illusion that we've arrived. Well, I don't quite understand it, but we've arrived. In this. No, we haven't. We haven't arrived anywhere. This is mid-flux. This is what change feels like. It's destabilising. It's confusing. It's uh, counterintuitive. This is, what, this is what the revolution feels like. So uh, we're in the midst of it. It could land in in a, a number of different places. I think the change could. It will eventually solidify, and we'll be able to build up again from where we are. Where we aren't is anywhere very healthy at the moment. You know, again, the power is very centralised. The income is very centralised. The positives of it are, if you're prepared to be what we call in the FAC an artist entrepreneur and uh, attack opportunities as they arise because the, the pace of change is quite rapid and uh, the kind of first to market thing applies here as in all kinds of other kind of capitalist endeavor and if you're prepared to attack that head on and be first to market do something interesting there is still a living to be made but it it means being an entrepreneur and I, i've I to say i've tried being an entrepreneur in the past and i'm not terribly interested in it to be honest i've uh, <laughs> I've, I've much rather play my instrument, but I don't think, I don't think um, up and coming musicians now have that luxury. So uh, I think if you do want to thrive, survive and thrive today, you have to be somebody with your finger on the pulse. You have to be approaching it with a money making hat on. There's only a limited number of hours in the day. What are you going to do? Are you going to spend today making the rent or are you going to spend today kind of lying in bed waiting for the creative urge to uh, emerge somehow as if by magic from your psyche because that's that's the kind of traditional musician way of doing it famously some bands in in the 90s would go into the studio and if they weren't feeling it they would just go home again <laughs> and some bands went through several years of just not feeling it every day meanwhile paying for the engineer to be sitting behind the desk so obviously that's one extreme, and I'm not uh, I'm not saying that uh, that's, that's what we ever did, but you have to be the other extreme, I think, to thrive at the moment. You have to be looking at uh, at the money making opportunities and how you can fit into that. How what can I do here? How could I make a difference here? How could I fit into this space? Rather than just be, you know, I'm just going to do my art, uh, sink or swim. I'm just going to do my art. <laughs> You've so, mentioned the Featured Artist Coalition. Yeah. What is it? Um, it is a, a, a loose group of... Uh, so featured artists are people like on the front of the record label, people on the their pictures on the front of the record, you know, as opposed to session musicians, I guess. When the move to digital was happening, the transition to digital was still happening. When it was starting, the only group that really wasn't didn't have a voice and so wasn't being listened to was the people on the front of the record. You know, I remember when, uh, I don't know, I, 
I, I can't remember being a, an artist, what order things happen in. You know, I can, in my life, I find it very hard to think, do, do we do that before that or after that? But uh, certainly around that time, we were, uh, the European Union was investigating the record industry and decided that EMI was a monopoly and was uh, counter, <laughs> counter capitalist and uh, was uh, disenabling competition. And so it had to be broken up. And so they decided what had to be sold from EMI was Parlophone. Well, we were signed to Parlophone. So there was a period of consultation and then Parlophone was sold to Warners. Guess who wasn't consulted during that period of consultation? Not a single artist on Parlophone had their voice taken into account. Nobody asked us, they just did it to us. You know, so that was what was going on. Again, in the move to digital, maybe it was before that, maybe it was after that, but around that kind of time, everybody was saying that they spoke on behalf of the artist. You know, the record companies were saying, you know, we sell their product, uh, what's good for us is good for them, so you have to do what we want. The managers were saying, well, we represent the artists, you know, so, you know, we, we had our finger on their pulse. And uh, you have to you have to listen to us and do what we say. You know the re- the publishers. We well, you know we represent the songwriters. The songwriters are the very foundation of the music industry. Without them, there is nothing. You have to do what we say. Nobody was asking the artists what they actually wanted. No, literally nobody. You know, apart from the BPI would wheel out some kind of tame artist from time to time who would parrot some lines they'd written for them. I think that the BPI should rule the world thank you can i go now can i go (laughs) please don't hit me so um these artists didn't have the music industry education to actually do a press conference and back their kind of scripted lines up with anything so you know they would they would turn up play their hit I think artists should be paid less and the BPI should get more. And then the BPI would do the press conference. Yes, as my artist here has said, I think you should give us all of your money. BPI being the British phonographic industry, by the way. Yes. So that that was who we were kicking against at that point because they had some teeth in those days and they were the representatives of the major labels, effectively. Anyway, we were getting quite scared because... uh, because all of this change was happening and nobody was consulting us. Everybody was pretending they spoke for us. And uh, yet what we wanted were quite some quite simple things. So uh, we, me and Ed O'Brien from Radiohead and Nick Mason from Pink Floyd and a whole bunch of other people kind of uh, established and less established got together and uh, decided to set up our own trade body. Of course, it was the angriest of the angry that uh, set this thing up. So we were spitting venom for a few years and nobody really took us seriously because every time we made a pronouncement, it was to call everybody else a bastard. <laughs> we, we discovered after a few years that was a little counterproductive. So uh, it took us a decade probably to get that established and respected and self-funding. And uh, now we have a staff, a very small staff, but uh, perfectly formed. We really now, uh, uh, I can keep my mouth shut. We are the the moderate voice in the room. You know, if there's any argument (laughs) in the music industry, we're the ones, we're like the Lib Dems in the middle going, hey guys, no, no, let's all come together. You know, let's all just work this out together. With me standing behind them going, bastards, bastards. (laughs) 
They're all bastards. Because <laughs> I'm an unreconstructed nutcase, you see. I just think I just think the world is bloody unfair, and I find that deeply irritating. Notwithstanding the fact that I've done quite well out of the unfairness, you know, I have to say, the, as it turns out, I'm in one of the 0.1% of the 0.1%. So, but it doesn't make it any more ridiculous that uh, you have to put 10 years in, 10 years, sacrifice 10 years of your life to get good enough at playing your instrument to do it for a living. If you're a doctor, you have to sacrifice 10 years of life to be good enough to do it for a living, and you end up on a £100,000 a year contract. You know, an architect, similarly, you know, you get end up with a 10 years study, professional qualification, you have a, a career path. And, you know, both of those things are incredibly creative. They're not mechanical. Yes, they're learning how the, what bricks are and what a skeleton is, but also they're learning how to be creative within their field. And it's that their people jobs, their, uh, I'm not saying being a musician is the same as being a doctor, but I'm saying that, that you have to be, both technical and creative and kind of passionate to, to be to succeed in all of these kind of endeavors and yet the uh, the artist at the end of their 10 year study is expected to want to carry on just for the art and and uh, if they make any money out of it well that they they can just consider themselves lucky and that's a crazy world to be in because being at, in my in my book art is just as valuable as medicine is just as valuable as architecture, these are things that we, the entire world needs to survive. These aren't things that would be nice to have, but you know, we could just sacrifice. It doesn't really matter if nobody makes music, really matter. Nice to have, but you know, I don't, I don't believe any, any of that's true. Throughout history, that kind of uh, assumption about what the arts is and how much it matters has allowed the artists to be exploited outrageously, absolutely outrageously. Because there is money to be made in the arts, those assumptions have allowed all of that money to be concentrated in the hands of the people who actually aren't making the art. If you're in a position now where you are wanting to get your music out there, but for the very reason that we have had a pandemic, we've had venues which have closed, people are wanting to be heard, they're having to be creative in their own sweet way to, to find new ways of getting the music out to the audience, which is providing one set of challenges. But then you've also got people who are arguably not getting that experience that you've just described, the, the opportunity to become more proficient at the very instrument they play. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, a, the old, old Catch-22 situation, really. To be any good at music, you have to do it full-time. To be able to do it full-time... You have to be able to uh, earn money. And if you're not earning money doing the music, then you're not doing it full time. Well, how do you get how do you get around that? You know, when we signed a record deal, we got around that by being funded by the major record label. That's the, the 90s, 60s to the 90s way of doing things. That's not really available anymore. Up to a fair, fairly few years ago, there were easier ways of doing it through the internet. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't such a mass of people wanting to be YouTube stars and a mass of people wanting to stream, and you know that that all of that all of those uh, channels are kind of saturated now. Very very hard to make an impact in any of that. The odds are stacked against you. So um, sadly, I think the people that are able to have enough money to do it for a living at the moment or have enough money to do it full time without 
actually doing it for a living are people who come from rich families you know the the midst the middle classes that are making uh, pop music at the moment by and large which is uh, ironic considering it used to be one of those escapes from working class misery you know like boxing and uh, can't think of any others so being serious for a minute we know that music is expensive you know and people are increasingly having to engage with multiple different roles in the music industry or indeed outside the music industry is this the future as i say we're in a state of flux so it's absolutely pointless saying what's going to happen tomorrow honestly nobody knows when it finally does land which it will it will land in in a in a much more stable way and that's when we'll be able to say yes this is how you need to do it in the future all you can really say is what you need to do now and what you need to do now is be pretty flexible. The music at the moment suits the duckers and divers, the bobbers and weavers. You know, if you can make a living on a market stall, you could probably make a living as a musician at the moment um, because it takes that kind of mentality, looking for opportunities, looking for a way in. And now, just as for the entire history of the music, music industry, you've got to be lucky. You know, we were incredibly lucky. We What we would were doing in the 90s happened to chime with what a lot of other people were thinking you know there were enough sort of vaguely like-minded bands around for it to look like a groundswell of something new for it to be for people to be able to write about it we were kind of on the leading edge of that five years earlier five years later probably would have got nowhere nobody you have to be pretty arrogant to think you know that the handful of bands that succeeded from that kind of early 90s crop were the best bands, you know. We were the best band. There were plenty of other, you know, better drummers than me. There were plenty of other better guitarists, bass players, singers, you know, plenty of other people were writing great songs. We were pretty lucky, really. And we, several times we could have, the whole thing could have collapsed under its own weight. You know, we made some appalling decisions early on. We signed to the wrong manager. That was the end of the, the end of the first album cycle when we said, right, we should have some money now. Where's the money? The cupboard was bare. Any one of our creditors at that time could have applied to have us declare bankrupt and sold our instruments to pay off our debt to them. And luckily, nobody did. The early days of our career were littered with poor judgments like that because we didn't know what we were doing, you know. And we kind of rather naively assumed that uh, everybody had our best interests at heart. The trouble with being famous, it brings fast living. Fast living brings its own problems. Sounds right to me. Sign me up. <laughs> Where do I well, sign? Well, exactly. You see, the question fast I was going to ask Sounds you great. was precisely that, you know. Do people <laughs> really want to know the truth? I guess they do. Is a life of sex, drugs and rock and roll all it's cracked up to be? I don't know. That was, that was the previous generation, you know. You want to ask Led Zeppelin or something. Really, we didn't have sex in the 90s. Sex, what's that? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, you're going to give kids loads of money. You're going to expect them to go off the rails, aren't you? There's no, that's not different today. It wasn't different then. It wasn't different in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties. What are you going to do? Not give kids money? Give them the money. I'm still here. It's probably a blessing that I never had any then. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, which did you never have any of? Sex, drugs or rock and roll? I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, what am I going to say? Don't do what I did. I did. It's pretty hypocritical of me not to tell anybody what I did. And nobody ought to lecture from me on bloody clean living, for Christ's sake. 
don't, don't look at me like that. If that's what if that's what I'm here for, to say, kids, don't do it. You got the wrong man. Dave, you've been in this industry for nearly thirty years. I mean, you've done it. You've you've been there. You've done it all. In your view, what is the point of the music industry? Well, that's. I mean, that's. You know, this is that's something I've been thinking on for for those thirty years. Really, what's the point of copyright? Really, that's the fundamental question, isn't it? I mean, and I've had arguments with many of the great and the good in the music industry over this. And here's my take on it. There's no moral justification for copyright, really. If I'm a footballer, even like the top footballer in the world, you know, I run out on the pitch, I get the ball. Is this how football works? Don't really follow it. You get the ball, you run up the pitch, you boot it into the goal, the crowd goes mad. When they show it on the TV later that night, you don't get paid again. You get your million pounds for the goal, sure. Then it goes on BBC One. BBC One don't pay another million pounds. Then it goes on ITV. You don't get another million pounds. They work once. They get paid once. Then they go home. People who uh, create copyrights work once and then get paid multiple times. So it's not moral justification. I'm not saying what I do is better than what a footballer does. There's no moral justification for my work being so like amazing that I should get paid over and over and over. Whereas the footballer, their work, you see, is pedestrian, quite literally. So they should only get paid once. If the point of copyright isn't that what I do is more valuable, what is the point? Well, copyright allows people like me to give up the day job. There's no other realistic way of doing it. There aren't those structures in place like there are for professional footballers. There, there isn't at the uh, EMI Drummers Academy where you can turn up, you know, get signed up at the age of 11 and uh, molly coddle through, kind of fed your first line of cocaine at 17. That doesn't happen in the music industry. You know, there aren't those structures in place. So it, there's nothing. It's bare, naked capitalism at its most raw. It's red in tooth and claw capitalism in the pop music industry. Even in the even in the classical music industry, it's not. It's much more like being a footballer. You know, you're, it's externally funded. The taxpayer pays a lot of it. You know, there's a, all of these things are grant supported. There's the, the music schools that take you through to to your early twenties, and then you get a job in an orchestra. And you know. All of these things are kind of paid for by the state because it's a kind of worthy cause, worthier than a bunch of kind of hick musicians kind of thrashing on a drum kit, you know. So it's there's no support system. So the, the, the copyright is the only way that somebody like me is going to be able to give up the day job and uh, play the drums every day so that I can be good enough to do it for a living. So it's a, it's a real privilege, really, the copyright system when we kind of abuse it at our peril we take it for granted at our peril there's no guarantee that it's going to be here tomorrow that's one of the possible outcomes of all of this you know i said we're in flux at the moment that's one of the possible landing slots is that copyright goes i don't think it's very likely but there are well-funded advocacy groups pushing for that right now and uh, it's not clear then what would take its place you know we, we mustn't take copyright for granted. It's a hell of a privilege that society has granted us the opportunity to be able to make a living at making pop music. So uh, we, we take it for granted at our peril and we've got to fight for it. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. What's the point? 